We would read together this morning from the scripture, Judges chapter 8 again, and the verses 18 through 21 for the morning's message. Judges chapter 8 and verse 18 in this unfolding story of Gideon and his accomplishments in the work of God. Judges 8 and verse 18, Then said he unto Zeba and Zalmanah, What manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tabor? And they answered, As thou art, so were they. Each one resembled the children of a king. And he said, They were my brethren, even the sons of my mother, as the Lord liveth. If ye had saved them alive, I would not slay you. And he said unto Jether, his firstborn, up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared, because he was yet a youth. And Zeba and Zalmunna said, Zalmunna said, Rise thou and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. Get in a robe. And slew Zeba and Zalmunna and took the ornaments that were on their camel's necks. Turn with me, please, and stand with me again. Sing number 495, singing out as I will try to save my voice. 495. Blessed souls are they whose sins are covered divinely Oh, 
Let saints keep near the throne Our help in times of deep distress Is found in God alone Thank you and be seated In our ongoing treatment of this record of the judges in Israel, I have most often taken only small bites for our sermon. Only small bites at a time. That is, just a very few Verses. And even then, as you know, some passages have required many sermons to unpack them. While we will not likely spend a great deal of time here in these verses, yet in Comparing the length of our text to its volume, there is the greatest contrast indeed. As to its length, it's only four verses. Only 129 words in our English text. Only 60 in the original Hebrew text. And yet here, here is an ocean of wealth and only a drop of literature. Blessed be M. Palmer, that prince of the pulpit, that prince of eloquence has given testimony better than my feeble efforts could ever hope to do. When commenting on another brief text, that of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, he said this, The whole gospel is shut up in just two lines. Here, just as you see, surely as you have seen the broadest landscape shut up within the small canvas of an artist. He said, if there be any one feature in the structure of the entire Bible which fills me with more constant astonishment than any other <laughs> it is the folding up within a single word the whole of the mysterious doctrines of grace that great pulpit prince Palmer 
said if there's one thing that astonishes me continually more than anything else in all of the Bible structure, it's this thing, God's ability to pack into a single word a ball. <laughs> what a testimony. What a testimony concerning the text that is before us today. An ocean and just a drop. It must stagger our minds in the magnitude of its scope <coughs> lying on the brevity of its landscape here on the page of our Bibles this morning. A story, a huge story, an entire epic told in just one line within the folds of another story told in just four verses. <laughs> oh, all of it told in just 60 Hebrew words. All oh, the wonder, the wonder, the wonder of God's word. I happened to come in the other day and walked in on a discussion between my wife and the children. They were discussing the importance, trying to express something of a defense and apologetic for why we should read books other than the Bible. <laughs> quite a discussion, quite edifying. And as much as I concur with them, about the matter of the great discussion and the great books. And as much as we all believe in that and practice that and teach that to our children, yet we all concur there's nothing, nothing to be compared with this book. Our God's ability to put an entire ocean in one tiny drop. Surely this is the divine genius on open display. Surely this is the envy of every human author in every age of literature. <laughs> Here in this text, in this brief text, four verses. Here are many of the loftiest themes ever to occupy human thought. Writ out, as the British would say, writ out in only a few drops of ink. Here are some of the deepest components of the human composition poured out, as it were, on a tiny fragment of parchment which would otherwise be inconsiderable. Here, is our God speaking. The voice that fills the vast expanse of all the universe condensed into a short narrative of four simple verses. And what is that story? What is that narrative this morning that I speak of? 
so loftily. Well, we have watched now for many weeks this man Gideon, the son of a prominent family among the Hebrews. Nevertheless, like them, he was a slave to a tyrant nation, Midian. We watched as he encountered that angel under a tree back there in chapter 6. While he was slaving away, hiding in a wine press to toil out a living for his family. By divine inspiration, we have been spectators to his growth in faith and his subsequent deeds of glorious triumph over his and God's enemies. But now at the zenith of his spectacular career, in the meridian of his meteoric path across the sky of divine revelation, here we come and we find him with these two notorious princes of evil. Here we find him with these two representatives of God's enemies. Now in this passage, well and truly within his hands, within his power. Having finished his God-appointed work of extinguishing God's enemies, over 150,000 Midianites, having finished that work, that public labor to which he was called away back yonder in chapter 6, he turns now to a more private matter that seems to have been and I delight to use a good old southern slang. He turns to a matter that seems to have been stuck in his craw all this time. If you don't know what that expression means, you didn't grow up in the South. There seems to be a matter now stuck in his craw. And here it is. Here it is unfolded, as I said before. Here it is laid out before us in just one line in verse 18. He said unto Zeba and Zalmona, What manner of men were they whom ye slew in Tabor? And there it is. It's out now. Oh, all this time, all this time, all this time in his conquests of Midian, here's the thing that's been in the back of his mind. What did those men look like that you murdered in Tabor? <laughs> He turns now to a private matter that has been stuck in his mind. You remember the story. 
as I said, it's an entire story within a story. In that one question, in that one line is a whole ocean in a single drop. Nestled in the backdrop of this single line is seven years of horror. Nestled in the backdrop of this one line is seven years of treachery and savage brutality. Nestled in the backdrop of this short line is seven years of wholesale rape and pillage and depraved malignity. As year after year these marauding hordes scoured the land like devouring locusts and wrought their wicked wills and gave rain to their wicked lusts all wrapped up in this one line. What were those men like that you murdered in Tabor? <laughs> Volumes Volumes, volumes could be written about those horrible seven years. But Gideon sums it up in a single line. And now, now Gideon wants reckoning. Now Gideon wants personal justice. Now Gideon wants revenge. Oh, what a, what a scene is this. He has now destroyed all of the Midianite forces. And he has before him in his hands only yet these two representative heads. And here they are. So here he is. And here's the question. What manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tabor? What a scene. Passions are running deep and emotions are running high. Rage is swelling in the breast of Gideon. And hatred takes the field of contest to meet it equally in the breasts of these princes. And here they are, face to face. In the short compass of this brief interview, the very fibers of every man's soul is stretched and inflamed, and the very smell of death reeks in the air between them. This is a scene most astonishing and revealing. And what, you may well ask, what does it reveal? I'll give you just four points. Number one, it reveals the depth of human depravity. Seen in these Midianites. I give you this only as a point in my outline without a great deal of commentary. Because I have already, even in messages prior to this, I have already said much 
that may be gleaned from that simple line in verse 18. That story within a story. We've viewed it already many times. The gross depravity exemplified in that seven years of history. Oh, especially in that one line, especially in that one incident to which Gideon refers in asking this question. There are men chased surely into a cave there in Tabor, trapped like some kind of an animal in a hole, butchered and murdered by these godless heathens. Not in a field of open combat and contest in a manly way. No, trapped and murdered. All of this speaking to us of the immense depth of human depravity. But I give you then as a second point we may see from this text the depth of human degeneracy. Even as we saw the depth of the human depravity in those Midianites, oh, my soul, we see the depth of human degeneracy even in Gideon. Verse 19, and he said, they were my brethren, even the sons of my mother, as the Lord liveth. If ye had saved them alive, I would not slay you. And he said to Jether his son, up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared, because he was yet a youth. Oh, can I set before your mind in this text? The depth of human degeneracy. In verse 19, he said, Gideon said, our hero said, if you'd not slain them, I would not slay you. What? What? Here, just here, we begin to see the flaw in the diamond of the human character of our hero. Indeed, we begin to see his humanity. By what authority could he make such an assertion? Oreb and Zeb in chapter 7 and verse 25 had been summarily dispatched without ceremony or delay. What but his own degenerate passions could possibly elicit such a thought out of this man? I would have spared you. Mm. Oh, yes. Even Gideon, the one whom we followed as he followed God. Even Gideon has here fallen prey. To his own degeneracy. Spare God's enemies. 
perish the thought. And yet this man, this human man, speaks these words out of the frailty of his own degenerate heart and unseemly passions. I give you this lesson. Whatever a man's accomplishments under the power and influence of divine assistance, whatever a man's accomplishments may be, underneath it all, he's yet a man. He's yet a man. My wife and I have been sharing some readings and some discussions of late last week or so about some of the men in history past. Brother Gormley has sent her some links of some things we've been reading about men who were instrumental in the formation of many of the mission organizations in the history of our Baptist denomination. And we've been reading with great pain terrible, terrible testimonies of things that they've done in the past. How they set our feet in bad paths. What am I saying? I'm simply saying, and I say it to you again most emphatically, whatever a man's accomplishments have been under the power and influence of divine assistance, underneath all of that, he's yet a man. He's just a man. What did you say? What did you say, Gideon? I would have spared you. <laughs> oh, his feet are surely made of clay. A David. A David can walk with God and fall prey. To adultery and murder, Second Samuel eleven and twelve. A Solomon can build the house of God, and that according to the divine plan, and yet harbor idols and whoredoms. First Kings chapter eleven. And Eli was the priest of God, and yet. He sheltered the most vile behavior in his sons, 1 Samuel 2 and 3. Oh, and dare I speak it? Oh, yes, blessed disciple Peter drew his sword and risked his life in the defense of Christ, and yet he stood around the devil's fire and cursed him in Matthew chapter 26. Oh, Gideon, our heart wants to say, you've done so well. <laughs> you've striven so valiantly. You've labored so faithfully. But now, but now, but now, you've fallen prey to your own passions. Oh, the degeneracy of the human heart. Seen in that statement, 
I would have spared you alive. But seeing secondly, in his treatment of his son, look at this verse. He said to Jether, his firstborn, up and slay him. But the youth too not his sword, for he feared, because he was yet a youth. Oh, he pressed his young son out of measure to do what reasonable piety would never have required. Can I say that again? I want you to take it in. His passion pressed his young son out of measure. To do what reasonable piety would never have required. Oh, I know scholars differ. I've read them all. I know scholars differ here somewhat. But most of them say that Gideon was acting here in the heat of a personal passion and not with a righteous calm. And a reasoned composure. Oh, how often, Brother John, how often have I done that? How often have I done that, my sons? Acted out of a personal passion. Without a reason to call and require that that piety would never have asked. Oh yes, Paul admonishes us clearly in Ephesians 6 and verse 4 to provoke not our children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that word provoke in the Greek means to be exasperated. And the word nurture means to tutor or train or educate so that we can take this command and translate it more literally and put it in our language and form this lesson. Instruct them so as to avoid exasperation. You young fathers and young people that aren't yet fathers, take that down. Take that down. Paul is saying, instruct them in such a manner so as not to cause exasperation. Oh, can I just show you from this text that the heart, even of the best of men, is a cesspool of vile degeneracy. Vile degeneracy. <laughs> One commentator tells us so much here when he says this. If any man ever stood on the very apex of success and triumph, it was Gideon on his return from the pursuit of the Midianites. He had saved his country. He had set a whole people free from a foreign yoke. 
He had restored the worship of the true and living God to his native land. Oh, and uprooted a vile and debasing idolatry. He was the conqueror of a vast host with most inadequate means. He had subdued and taken prisoners to powerful kings. He had avenged the death of his own brothers upon those who in pride and wantonness had slain them. And he had chastened the insolent, cowardly, and unpatriotic conduct of his own countrymen who at his time of greatest need had insulted instead of helped him. And he stood in the proud position of having undertaken an almost impossible task and having succeeded beyond anyone's utmost expectations. But but in the very height of this success we seem to have an overbalancing toward a fall. It is very slight. There was still a wonderful moderation of mind we see in him. But the weak human heart had a stronger draught of success than it could bear. As long indeed as his eye was quite single and it was only the glory of God that he sought and the welfare of his countrymen, all went well. But Gideon was not perfect. Had he been without the pride of fallen humanity, he would not have slain the captive kings. He would not have put to death the insolent men of Succoth and Penuel richly as they deserved punishment. But it is here that we seem to see the first clouding of the singular brightness of Gideon's disinterested zeal. When we have made every allowance for the customs and opinions of the age, we cannot help but feeling that something different from zeal and love for God was at work within him now. Zeban Zalmunna had slain his brothers and so had done an injury to him and put a slight upon him. And the men of Succoth and Penuel had taunted and affronted him. They had undervalued his power. Mm. They had taken advantage of his momentary weakness to put him to shame and so he must have his revenge. In his hour of more than human greatness, the littleness of humanity started into birth. Can I say it again? In his hour of more than human greatness, the littleness of humanity had its birth. It was no doubt true that the law of the avenger of blood justified the slaughter of the kings. 
and the base conduct of the Succothites and Penuelites would, would secure a universal acquiescence in the justice of their punishment. But still we cannot help seeing that the pride of self, albeit unperceived by Gideon, had a hand in these actions which cast a distinct shade on Gideon's shining path and which we cannot read of even at this distance of time without a pain of regret. How glad we should have been if that noble spirit in the very flesh of victory had risen sufficiently above the spirit of his age and above his own anger to spare these prostrated foes. And if in the height of his glory he had despised the meanness of the men of Sukkoth and left them to the punishment of their own shame and contempt of their fellow men, but it is not so. Oh, it could not be. Perhaps, says this writer, the lesson of human weakness is more valuable to us in the story. For it leaves us a warning not to seek revenge for ourselves under any circumstances, but to be content to commit our cause to God that it is better for man to be thwarted and humiliated than to have everything his own way. May God help us. Oh, we've watched blessed old Gideon in this history. We've watched him and I compared him in my mind like a wave of the sea. It grows and swells and surges until it peaks and finally it crests and breaks forth in noisy splendor and threatens to destroy all that's in its path. And then it crashes back down and falls gradually into a tiny ripple and eventually it hardly disturbs the gentle sands on the shore. Oh, here in the four brief verses, that wave has crested. The fall has broke. His rage is spent. And it's all over in 60 words. It's all over. It's all over. Oh, the depth of our sad degeneracy. But notice with me now. We can see in this text, thirdly, the depth of human desperation. Verse 21. Then Zeba and Zalmona said, Rise thou and fall upon us. Get it over with. 
Oh, the depth of human desperation. This is the foul black abyss of desperation into which every sin-soaked soul will sink apart from God's redeeming grace. Oh, yes. Fall on our treacherous heads and kill us. Suicide. Come on, get it over with. Oh, the depth, the depth, the depth of hopeless desperation in the unregenerate heart. Oh, yes, Saul. First Samuel chapter 31. Draw your sword, you rebel king, without grace, and get it over with. In your desperation. Oh, yes, go on out, Judas, and hang yourself in Christless self-loathing and desperation with no hope in Matthew 27. Go ahead and get it over with. Oh, cry out for a swift end to your wretched, cursed hopelessness. You princes of godless evil, cry out to get it over with. Because of the desperation of your depraved human heart. Oh, I show you in this text the depth of human desperation. When all your sand castles have crumbled and all of your straw houses have been burned down and reduced to ashes, there'll be nothing left for you but desperation. Just get it over with. Just get it over with. Fall on us. The depth. I feel a desperation. Whoa, but wait. What else can we see in this text? What else can I bring to you out of this ocean in just a drop? <laughs> An ocean of light in a drop of revelation. I give you my fourth point. We see the depth of human devotion. Oh, even in all the depravity, even in all the desperation, even in all the degeneracy, there remains this devotion. Just here in this cesspool, of human depravity, like a fresh rose found in a garbage dump. Just here is a fragrant scent of the most intimate human devotion. Look what Gideon said. He said, "Who? What were these men like that you you slew so mercilessly?" <laughs> 
paper. They said they resembled you. They looked just like you. He said, oh, of course they did. Of course they did. They were my brethren. No more than that. More than that. Way more than that. They were even the sons of my mother. Oh, whoa, there's a word. There's a word that brings stinging. Said Gideon, not only were these my brethren, but these were the sons of my mother. Here, here is the crown jewel of all human devotion on royal display. Never, you young people take this down and never you leave it behind. Never is a man more like Christ than when he rises to the honor of his mother. Never is a daughter more like Christ than when she rises to the honor of her mother. <laughs> oh, yonder on that cross that I love to contemplate, she started this morning playing the old rugged cross. Oh, I love it. I love it. It was yonder on that cross, even while our Savior gasping for every breath under the weight of his own body, even there, as he drinks up the bitter dregs of hell's foul poison and God's infinite wrath, even there, I say, he pauses and the scripture tells us in John nineteen twenty six, he saw his mother and instructs that most beloved disciple of his to care for her. <laughs> oh, the depth of human devotion on display in this text. The depth of human emotion that's conjured up in that single word, mother. Oh, the first time, could I just remind you? that the very first time that word is used is before the fall. Before the fall. Where it's told to us that marriage rearranges that sweetest tie on earth to form another one. Oh, listen to me, the tenderest memories that man can cherish. Surround this word, mother. The sweetest hopes that life can anticipate. Surround this word, mother. The strongest ambitions that character can cultivate. Surround this word, mother. And all, all, all are born and nurtured at the feet of a godly mother. 
Oh, listen to me. If the price of a virtuous woman is far above rubies in Proverbs 31, if the price of a virtuous woman is far above rubies, might I just suggest to you that a virtuous mother is worth twice that price. Said Gideon to these men, you hurt my mother, and this will never be forgiven. Anything else, he said, I could have spared you, but you hurt my mother. Oh, if it's so of our earthly, godly mothers, you young people, Oh, savor this. Listen to your pastor this morning. You'll rise no higher in this world or in the next than the honor you bestow on your mother. The devotion that's due to a godly mother, but I say to you beyond that this morning, if it is so for our earthly mothers, what can we say about the devotion that's due to our heavenly mother? <laughs> oh yes, I've referred to it before. John chapter 3 and verse 3. By inspiration, the Spirit of God said you must be born again. I don't care what this godless generation is saying. A man cannot be a mother. You can rearrange all the physiology and anatomy you want to. A man will never be a mother. Some lines God has drawn even science can't erase. Ye must be born again. That's the function of a mother. I'll never forget it. The first time I entertained that thought, God, our heavenly mother. You must be born again. That's the function of a mother. Matthew 23, he talked about that hen, didn't he? He said, I often will have gathered you as a hen gathered for chicks. What is that? That's a mothering ministry. I grew up in the country outside of Anderson, South Carolina. My, my uncle that I spent many, 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 many hours and days with on the farm there. He reared chickens. And I know y'all have heard preacher stories before, but this ain't a preacher story. This is the actual truth. I was a little boy. One of my Uncle Mackey's chicken houses burnt down. Burnt down. He went out through there. Oh, it was awful smell. He went out through there cleaning up, shoving up the chickens. And little chicks ran out from under one. She had covered them with her body, burned to death. Those little chicks were well. What is it? His mothering ministry. Listen to me. There's things your mother will do for you. Why in the world will do for you? She's already gone down into the valley of death for you. 
to bring you out. Oh, if this devotion is due to our earthly mothers, what do we owe to our heavenly mother? Went to Calvary and underwent the flaming justice of God to save his little chicks. Oh, the imagery. The imagery. I could go on all day and I wouldn't mind it at all. The imagery of this text conjures up to our souls this last thing, the depth of human devotion. Oh, what a thing. What a scene. I can see the emotions swelling in his breasts as he says to these men, those were my mother's sons. A whole ocean of human composition contained in just a tiny drop of a written text. Sixty words. Be interesting to know how many words have been in this sermon. I can assure you it's far more than sixty. And I have not exhausted the text. An ocean in a drop. Turn with me, if you will, again. Please stand with me and sing aloud number 522. 522, please, standing. O turn, great ruler of the skies. Turn from my sin thy searching eyes. And let the offenses of my hand within thy book recorded stand. Great ruler of the skies, turn from my sin, thy surging eyes, nor let the fences of my hand within thy book. Recorded stand Give me a will To thine subdue A conscience pure A soul renewed Nor let me wrap in endless gloom and outcast from thy presence rule oh let thy spirit to my heart once more his quickening my mind from every fear release 
answered my troubled thoughts to peace. Yeah. <sighs>